good morning and welcome to Your DIY Health here on the Spreaker Radio Network and simulcasting on free conference call. I'm your host, Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. You can call me Sarge. It's Thursday, September 28th, 2023. Just two days left in the month. My goodness, this month has flown by. Anyway, this program is meant to provide natural healing information only and is in no way meant to replace the advice of a competent medical professional, assuming you can find one. I search for and present to my listeners natural modalities that that simply assist and augment the body's ability to heal itself. The body wants to fix itself. The body knows how to fix itself. It has a God-given innate ability to do so. The only thing that's missing is the raw materials. And when when the body has what it needs, and when you put those back into the mix, stand back and wait to be amazed because your body's going to do some really cool stuff. Now you can visit my website at yourdiyhealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R. DIY, like do it yourself, health, H E A L T H, yourdiyhealth.com. There's all kinds of information there. All the products we talk about are there, including the iTeric Care device, which is featured prominently at the top of the homepage. And there's lots of information about that. There's uh, downloadable flyers and brochures. There's a link to a YouTube playlist that has over 140 videos talking about the technology, how it's used, and testimonials from people all over the world who have had life-changing, miraculous results using these things. And then also there is a link to the dedicated website for the device, which has more information, more testimonials, and the Order Now button. Just click that little button and miraculous things will happen (laughs) no actually you just get to place your order and the order the individual ones are 380 dollars a piece in the u.s that's the total price everything no no additional taxes or fees or anything just 380 and um, the amount goes in the amount box so when you get to that, there's, a, there's one screen that has two places. It's one's the amount. You put 380 in there. And the second one is the remarks box, and you put your name in there. That way, we know who sent the money. <laughs> yeah, real good thing to have. But if you do that, uh, everything will go smoothly, and you should have your wand in two to three days, depending on you know the exact time it's placed, whether it's a weekend or something like that. But generally speaking, um, two to three business days, is what it will take to get to you usually and uh, you'll be in good shape so i encourage you to take advantage of that while you can um you never know when the supply chain is going to dry up and uh be people i'm sure there's going to be people after everything shuts down i need to get one sorry can't help you should have called before but anyway don't drag your feet don't wait you know strike while the iron's hot you know make hay while the sun shines all those funny little terms but they all make the same thing do it now (laughs) if not yesterday so uh, get your wand i'll tell you what these things are amazing they do some wonderful things especially when you figure how simple they are to use you just plug it in point it and turn it on and blow on your blow warm air all over you and uh, people have been reporting all kinds of things and again these are not medical devices it's a home electronic device like a hair dryer or radio but along with that warm air comes terahertz frequencies and those are the things that really uh, help your body Uh, your body takes those frequencies and uses them to fix itself and your body's doing the work it's just it's like when you put gas in a car the car is the one that's running but it's the gas that makes it go This is kind of the gas 
that makes your body do what it needs to do. Along with the nutrition, they both work in a similar way, and they both do it by giving your body what it needs to fix itself. Um, one's just something you got to eat. <laughs> and you know, the sad thing about nutrition, it only works for the person taking it. Nice thing about the Itericare is it works for everybody that can, you know, in the household that uses it. And that's the beauty of it. Um, one $380 purchase can benefit your entire household, friends, family, the whole shooting match, which is uh, gives a kind of an edge over the nutritional stuff, uh, which is, you know, you use it for one person, it gets used up, and you got to buy it again. With this one, you use it, and use it, and use it, use it, use it, use it. As long as, long, long as you take care of it, you don't have to buy it again. So it's a fantastic investment in the health of your family, and I strongly encourage everybody to have at least one of these in their household. I have multiples. I have, uh, oh, good grief, probably a half a dozen in the different models. I've got the classics. I've got the premier or premium. I've got the pro, and um, they all work really, really well. And uh, hopefully this weekend I'll be using the pro on my one of my horses who's got some arthritis, and see if we can't loosen him up a little bit. But uh, and we'll report more on that when once it's done. But I've seen good reports from other people using it on their horses, so we'll see. Um, but anyway. Take advantage of it while you can. Get your wand and um, all will be good. <laughs> okay, that being said, while you're on the main website, be sure and hit the radio shows tab. At the top of the page is a link to the archive page set up through castbox.fm. And if you scroll down a little bit, you'll see the information on the shows we do when they're on and how you listen. And then scroll to the bottom of the page, you'll see the information or the link to the Facebook page set up for show as well as the Telegram channel. Keep in mind the topics discussed and opinions mentioned on this show are those of the host and or guests and don't necessarily represent the opinions of the uh, Spreaker Radio Network, free conference call, their owners or sponsors, or any of the alphabet agencies out there listening in. Nothing we say in this show should be construed as an attempt to diagnose, treat, or cure any kind of a health or wealth issue. It's all here for your education and entertainment purposes only, so that as a responsible adult, you can use this show as a jumping off point to do your own research and due diligence to make sure that what you're doing and what you're trying is right for you. That being said, I've got a couple of Greg Reese videos I want to play for you. The first one is rather interesting. Uh, more and more and more information is coming out about how the government was aware of the fact that the COVID jabs were killing people. Yeah. <laughs> and um, thank goodness for some people that filed FOIA requests. But here's a video. I'm going to set it up to um, share on free conference call. Uh, let's see here. Where is it? There we go. And here we go with Greg Reese's video. Naomi Wolf and her team at the Daily Clout submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the Centers for Disease Control, requesting all emails sent and received by Dr. Rochelle P. Walensky, Sherry A. Berger, and Kevin Griffiths between the dates of February 1st and May 31st of 2021, containing the word myocarditis. They received hundreds of pages showing that the White House and the entire COVID response team knew that the COVID vaccines were killing people and causing blood clots, heart attacks, and myocarditis. 
They also received 46 additional pages that were not requested. Of these 46 pages, over 80% of them were fully redacted and involved the White House and the Executive Office of the President. These redacted emails were labeled Draft White House Script and Some Tough Q&A. They knew in the spring of 2021 that these shots were killing people. I've said over and over, and I don't mean to belabor this, but to remind everyone, when Steve says, how could this happen? I always say, from my experience working around a White House, that it can't happen unless the boss says it has to or that it can. You can't kill Americans, I've said this so many times on this show, um, knowingly without the okay of the president. So I knew that up the chain of command, the White House had to be involved in these decisions. But we just didn't have the, the smoking gun. Now we have the smoking gun. You remember we have 200 volunteer lawyers. So one of these lawyers' name is Ed Berkovich, and he FOIA'd, meaning sent a Freedom of Information Act demand to the CDC about myocarditis. And something very interesting happened. He got um, 472 pages uh, from the CDC in response to that FOIA. He was also given an additional 46 pages, which he didn't ask for. And these additional 46 pages, over 80% of the pages were fully redacted. The redactions were, quote, pursuant to 5 USC 552 exemptions 5 and 6. What is redacted was solicited or shared with the president or his most senior advisors. They know it's happening. The other thing they're freaking out about is myocarditis. They know it's happening. The evidence came in, the updates came in, and the the American people are going to be asking questions or starting to ask questions. So they convene a crisis, a set of crisis meetings, basically, in which um, they're basically trying to formulate a press response. These are all press people. They crafted a, a media response. And by the way, there are people who deal with broadcast news as well in that list. And the media response doesn't tell the truth after May of 2021. They rolled out myocarditis. And remember what they said always, extremely rare, mild resolves, extremely rare, mild resolves. They knew that they were lying and they said nothing about the clotting issue from what I recall. So basically they created from this set of crisis communications directed by the White House with the White House's most senior advisors, the COVID-19 response project, which was overseen by the White House at the behest of the White House to create a media response that you experienced all of 2021, all of 2022, to get you to keep injecting this into your body and injecting it into the bodies of your loved ones. And they knew that they were lying and they knew that they were hurting people with blood clots, platelet problems, and heart damage. And that's what they did and that's what happened. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. All righty then. Um, we've also got a... Uh, news article that goes right along with this um oh shoot <laughs> i should have left it where it was uh, let me scroll down and find it here scroll scroll oh it must have went past it uh, hmm. well ah there we go 
Fauci, Walensky, and the U.S. government knew that COVID jabs were causing myocarditis and blood clots in early 2021, but hid this from the public. Any surprise there? (laughs) On August 29th, 2023, the U.S. government was forced to release 472 pages of emails dated February 1st, 2021 through May 31st, 2021. During this time frame, the federal government carried out their liability-free contracts with Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson and disseminated their first round of experimental mRNA spike protein, which they claimed was a safe and effective vaccine, when in fact it was a bioweapon. That's my editorial edition there. These bombshell emails were released under a Freedom of Information Act or FOIA request, Submitted by attorney Edward Berkovich, these emails reveal that Anthony Fauci of the NIAID, Francis Collin of the National Institutes of Health, Rochelle Walensky of the CDC, Vivek Murphy of the U.S. Surgeon General, and other top-level government employees knew that the COVID jabs would cause myocarditis and blood blood clotting disorders. These risks were brought to their attention several times and disclosed throughout the email chain or discussed throughout the email chain. Instead of being honest with the American people about these serious and life-threatening risks, these government figures devised a series of media messages to promote the mRNA injections as safe and effective, which they still are doing, and mandatory to return to normal. The emails highly redacted reveal the government's conspiracy to withhold important risk information from the public while pushing forth an experiment that should have never come near a single human being. These same government figures brought forth policies threatening the rights of the people, coercing individuals to take part in multiple rounds of the same medical experiment that had well-documented risks. These government figures even worked with social media companies to suppress the truth about these harmful COVID jabs and pressured the companies to elevate their deceptive messaging, which reaffirmed that the jabs were safe and effective, even when they knew they were not. I got to stop here for just a second. You know, they they pushed this thing saying that, oh, well, we're going to need at least two to start with. So you have the first jab, then you got the second jab, and then, oh, well, we're going to need boosters. And why would that be? Well, when the goal, which is the real goal, is to kill as many people as possible, and 50% of the jabs rolled out were nothing more than saline solution or an inert thing that would not cause any harm whatsoever. So you would have people out there saying, I got my jab and I'm perfectly fine. Well, that's because you didn't get the real thing. You got saline, salt water. And they had to do that because they knew these things were going to kill people. I mean, before these things were rolled out, two months before, the FDA had a slideshow presentation that I've got a copy of that showed there was a boatload of uh, adverse events that they were expecting, myocarditis and pericarditis being a couple, and death, be it another one, along with a whole bunch of other things. So they knew that he was going to kill before the first person rolled up their sleeve. They also knew that 50% of the jabs were going to be saline solution. And they had to have that so they could have the 
um, propaganda tool of people out there saying, well, I got mine and I'm just fine. Well, then we don't want that person to just get away scot-free, though. So we have to require a second shot where there's a good chance instead of getting the saline this time, they'll actually get the real McCoy. And there are lots and lots and lots of, of stories out there where somebody got their first shot and everything was fine because they got saline. Then they got the heavy-duty second shot, and it killed them. Ernesto, um, was it Rodriguez, I think? Or, um, Ramirez? I can't remember his last name. The gentleman from Texas, who he got the shot and was okay, and then his son got it. And I think he died after his second dose. And there you have it. Saline the first time, real McCoy the second, and boom, dead. And that's the kind of thing that goes on. Um, Ed Dowd's book, Cause Unknown, documents that over and over, where people got the first one, they were fine, they got the second one, and it just creamed them. So... On the off chance, I mean, you're really, you know, if you got both the first and second dose and didn't have any problems because you got the saline both times, you should have been playing the lottery. And you should have stopped right at that point with the shots because the more chances you get, the more chances are you're going to get the real McCoy. And you have 50% that were saline, you had about 40% more that were the real thing, but they were a, a, a reduced potency and then you had about 10 percent that were the rapid kill shots and that's where you see a lot of these uh, sports figures especially the footballers over in the eu and you know africa and those areas of south america they there was a big push for all the soccer players around the world to get these jabs and the next thing you know they're dropping dead on the field in the during the middle of the game they were getting the real McCoys. And the more of these things you get, even if you get the low-level ones, they're going to reduce your immune system to the point where that's why you have all these turkeys in government, like Biden and his wife and Walensky and all the rest, all the people, the, the Jimmy Kimmels and all the rest of the that that um, claim that they got the shots and were all boosted up and everything and they keep getting covid well, it's because they've knocked their immune system out through these shots, and now they're anything they get. They could get a common cold eventually and could kill them. So that's what's going on with these uh, multiple doses. we got to make sure that everybody gets the real McCoy at least once. So anyway, moving along, the federal government conspired to withhold life-threatening risks on the COVID jab from the public. The emails obtained by the FOIA all contained the term myocarditis and include correspondence between CDC personnel, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, Sherry A. Berger, and Kevin Griffiths. A whistleblower from, the, uh, from within the agency also provided an additional 46 pages of emails showing how the White House knew about these vaccine harms in the spring of 2021, but decided to hide the risk from the public. And why would they do that? Because they're trying to kill people, of course, while continuing to push multiple shots on unsuspecting Americans. Shockingly, over 80% of the 46 pages were fully redacted, according to Amy Kelly of the Daily Clout. These pages include court, included correspondence on vaccine messaging involving the White House and Executive Office of the President. Uh, 
The office of the president was able to hide or redact much of their treachery regarding the vaccine due to the special rule built into the FOIA request that entitles the president to, to secrecy. Exemption 5 states the presidential communications pre- uh, privilege protects documents solicited and received by the president or his immediate White House advisors who have broad and significant responsibility for investigating and formulating the advice to be given to the president. Dr. Naomi Wolf spoke out about these redactions on Steve Bannon's war room. She said the reason for all these redactions is that what is redacted was solicited or shared with the president or his most senior advisors. Dr. Wolf analyzed the emails around May 24 and 25. High-ranking officials from the White House, the the NIH, the CDC, and other federal agencies were freaking out about myocarditis and thrombotic thrombocytopenia syndrome. Instead of addressing these issues honestly and ethically, the agencies engaged in a coordinated cover-up, a media response that doesn't tell the truth. When dealing with the issue of myocarditis, Abigail Tumpy, a former communications uh, communicator at the CDC, wrote to former CDC director Wilshel Wierlinski, the other and other high-ranking health officials about the need for a press conference, which they redacted. Instead of addressing the issue with Americans, the issue was made trivial and the vaccine was made mandatory. Again, only reason could be because they're trying to kill people. When dealing with the same issue, Benjamin Wakana, a top White House communications official, sent an email titled COVID Tough Q&A. The email, dated May 25, 2021, went out to Murphy, Walensky, Fauci, and other White House advisors, but all 17 pages of the communication were redacted. Dr. Wolf said the final email is from Grace Kuwak, uh, Kwak, I guess it is, K-W-A-K, White House uh, advisor to the Deputy COVID-19 Response Coordinator, Executive Office of the President, asking Dr. Walensky's executive assistant, Lynn Gershman, Uh, where to find papers, briefings about updates on TTS or thrombotic thrombocytopenia syndrome, myocarditis, etc. Ms. Gershom uh, forwarded this request from the White House to Sherry Berger. The individuals implicated in the conspiracy to withhold life-threatening risk information about the COVID jab from the public also include Courtney M. Rowe, Director of Strategic Communications and Engagement for the White House COVID-19 Response Team, Kate Berner, White House Principal Deputy Communications Director, Kevin Munoz, White House Assistant Press Secretary, John Burklow, Acting Chief of Staff in the Office of the Director of the NIH, Renate Miles, Acting Associate Director for Communications and Public Liaison, NIH uh, of the liaison of the NIH, uh, Max Lesko, uh, JD, Chief of Staff, Office of the U.S. Surgeon General, White House COVID-19 Response Team, Subhan M. N. Chima, uh, Senior Strategic Communications Advisor, White House COVID-19 Response Team, Mariel S. Sayez, White House Director of Broadcast Media, Cameron Webb, M.D., Senior Advisor for Equity to the White House COVID-19 Response Team. Kristen uh, Allen, White House National Press Secretary, Health and Human Services. And Sherry Perry, or Sharice Perry, 
former senior advisor, COVID-19 Equity Task Force, Health and Human Services. So there you have a boatload of high-level government uh, personnel who were all aware that these things were killing people all the while they were making them mandatory and calling them safe and effective. There's only one reason they could be doing that, and that's because they are trying to injure, maim, and kill as many people, American citizens, as they possibly can. Sounds like treason to me. If that's not waging war on the United States, I don't know what is. Good grief. And let's see here. Um, going along with that, here's another Greg Reese video that deals with the upcoming um, test of the emergency alert system scheduled for next Wednesday, a week from yesterday, which is October 4th at 2.20 p.m. Listen to this. Military attorney Todd Callender is an expert in international law and morbidity mortality law. He's been filing lawsuits and blowing the whistle on the enemy ever since they made the shots mandatory. These lawsuits have led to his research team amassing thousands of whistleblowers that point to a planned Marburg epidemic already paid for by taxpayer dollars in the recent PREP Act. Todd Callender said that inside the lipid nanoparticles, there are sealed pathogens, including E. coli, Marburg, and Ebola, and that different pathogens can be released by different frequencies pulsed through the 5G network. Inside of these shots that people already received, inside the lipid nanoparticles, the hydrogel, there exists pathogens inside of the particles that have not yet opened. Those pathogens are chimeric. They include E. coli Marburg, Ebola staphylococcus and brewer's yeast amongst others. We know that upon the broadcast from the 5G system that is now employed across the United States and the world for that matter, um, when they broadcast an 18 gigahertz signal uh, for one minute, three different times as a pulse, it will cause those lipid nanoparticles to swell and release these pathogenic contents, thereby causing a Marburg epidemic that they've already spent the money on. They've already, it's already done, right? The Marburg epidemic for purposes of the law has happened and now we just need the actual uh, disaster to happen. And, and there's actually worse parts to it than that, including the 1P36 gene deletion that effectively will turn those poor people into zombies. As odd as that sounds, our government's preparing for that. He also points out that 1P36 gene deletion is the number one side effect of the Pfizer shots, a disease with zombie-like symptoms that make a person aggressive with a propensity to bite. The CDC published a public service announcement on the preparedness for a zombie apocalypse in 2011. That same year, ConPlan 8888-11, Counter Zombie Dominance, was published. The military's advanced ammunition known as multi-purpose rounds are single rounds comprised of multiple projectile options to be chosen via direct communication from the tank fire control to the cartridge chambered in the breech. So it would make sense to arm weaponized vaccines the same way. Popular online personality Jason Shirka has recently posted a warning that on October 4th, FEMA will be using 5G frequencies 
to activate nanopathogens in the blood of the vaccinated. On October 4th at 2.22 p.m. Eastern Time, the emergency broadcast system will be activated across the entire United States under the leadership of FEMA, disguised as a test. However, this test will be used to send a specific high-frequency signal through devices like smartphones, radios, and TVs with the intention of activating graphene oxide and other nanoparticles that have been inserted into billions of human beings around the world through the obvious mediums. If the October 4th date does not occur for any reason, the backup plan will be to do it on October 11th at the same time. In the case that this is not able to be stopped, I ask you all to shut off your phones and all other relevant devices at 2 p.m. Eastern time for a period of two hours to be safe. I don't know who this guy is, but I will add that we probably want to turn the 5G off for good. And we definitely need to take control of our government because a plan as diabolical as this would be game over. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Okay, that went by pretty quick. But just to uh, clarify things, and um, I just downloaded a copy of that ComPlan 8888-11. It is real. It is out there. <laughs> And uh, the government's preparing for a zombie apocalypse. So it would seem. But anyway, um, to clarify what they're saying is these jabs, which contain uh, lipid nanoparticles, which include graphene oxide. Graphene oxide can be used as a carrier for a toxic or uh, pathologic uh, payload. And when the body is activated through the 5g phone system through a specific frequency that's sent out the body produces a freak a, a, a voltage that within it which triggers the release of the payload on the graphene oxide and he listed the things that were in that payload which can cause marburg-like symptoms which is a hemorrhagic uh, situation where you begin to bleed from all orifices and it's much more lethal than the uh, uh, so-called COVID-19 was <laughs> you know 97 point or 99.7% uh, recovery rate with COVID that wasn't bad at all uh, what killed people with COVID was first the uh, the treatment protocols of gra of uh, uh, remdesivir and uh, ventilators and then the actual jabs which killed far more people than the disease so now that everybody has taken you know 69 percent of the people in the u.s supposedly have had at least one of these toxic jabs hopefully a good deal of those being um, saline solutions so they'll be protected somewhat but the ones that actually got the jabs the real things could potentially be at risk come next Wednesday. If they're accurate with these uh, predictions, we could have a situation when they test that um, system next week that all of a sudden millions of people across the United States and around the world will end up either dead or very, very sick. Again, why would they do that? 
because they're trying to kill as many people as they possibly can. We keep hearing over and over that we have we're overpopulated, which is a total lie. And it's all about population reduction and control. They want to kill as many as they can, and those that are left alive will be subject to the iron-fisted control of the government. One of the other things that was uh, pretty disgusting, uh, and it was in the first video, they were talking about the um, myocarditis as being very rare. (laughs) And one of the other ones was... um, resolves well if you ask any cardiologist if someone's diagnosed with myocarditis the only way it will resolve is when the person who has it dies so that's how they get around what they're saying technically what they're saying is correct it will resolve but it will resolve when the person who has it dies yeah what I, I'm not crazy about having an illness resolved that way for me, uh, but that's what it does. And, of course, very, very rare. Well, it was until they rolled out these jabs. Now it's an everyday occurrence. There's no such thing as a minor case. A minor case should be dead in 10 years. A regular case should be dead in five. Okay. But either way, it's going to resolve. <laughs> of course, you'll be in a pine box at that point. But no, that's okay. That's what their goal is anyway. Good grief. And then we have one more here. And I keep forgetting what this one's about. <laughs> but I know it's a good one. So I'm going to play this uh, this last Greg Reese video. It's another good one that he just recently put out. Here we go. The counterculture is now aware of false flags, operations that are executed by the powers that be and blamed on someone else, are now being called out in real time on social media platforms, despite all the censorship. It's becoming popular, and if the powers that be can no longer trick us, then they will try and hurt us. According to the scientific data, nearly all humans have a certain degree of psychic awareness, and some of us become acutely aware of it. The term remote viewing was coined by the U.S. Department of Defense when they began training people in this field. It is the art of viewing an unknown target at any distance within the mind's eye and retrieving accurate data. To refine this data, remote viewers work together as a team and look for redundant data. When we look at remote viewing data, if one person says something, you know, that's interesting. If two describe the same thing, that's a little more weight when three or four describe the same thing. We pretty much take that to the bank. Remote viewing teams such as the Future Forecasting Group work with a double blind protocol. This means that they do not know where or what the target is. The information they are given is an arbitrarily designated number, such as A9I5-Q7K4. As they blindly view the target in a meditative state of focus, imagery is flashed in the mind and immediately sketched out and collected. The Future Forecasting Group has been successful at predicting the Panama Canal incident, the destruction of the Kokovka Dam in Ukraine, the Halloween stampede in South Korea, 
police violence at the Canadian trucker protest, and many others, which can all be found at futureforecastinggroup.com. The Future Forecasting Group was recently assigned the target of the next financial crisis, but the entire team was all distracted by overpowering images of a catastrophic event. They all saw the same thing, massive explosions with multiple points of impact, small particles and debris falling from the sky, people sick with cesium, which is the most dangerous of all radioactive isotopes used in dirty bomb scenarios. They saw police checkpoints, people seeking shelter underground, and an exodus of sad-looking people. Remote viewing goes back in the written record for millennia and has been repeated in the current scientific record for decades. According to this body of work, most people are able to do this. And this is why Cliff High's predictive linguistics program works. By reading the entirety of human language across the World Wide Web, the program will list repeated words and phrases in all languages, creating a macroscopic view of what everyone is talking about. So if all humans are psychic, whether they know it or not, then you would see it in the collective chatter, especially for traumatic events. The bigger the trauma, the more people would be emoting their anxiety online. And key words can be found, such as the word ejecta, which has been showing up in Cliff High's work, which shows the same event. My data had, has very rarely had this particular set of words show up in it, and one of it was ejecta. Ejecta, as though... Ejecta. And, and that was in our remote viewing data, like, yeah. Predictive linguistics reveals a time frame of when a big event happens at the point in time when the tension language ends and the release language begins. The tension language is the psychic awareness before an event and the release language is the event itself as everyone is made aware. Based on this, Cliff High sees this event happening near the end of the year. Both the Predictive Linguistics and the Future Forecasting Group saw that this was a decision that was made by some faction of government, and they propose that if enough eyes are on the powers that be, then maybe it will never happen. We are in this period of time that I call uncertainty, okay? And throughout, through, from here to the event is an uncertain period of time in which we will feel uncertainty as we move towards this event. But I'm of the opinion that we can do things now that will alter the potential future that would arise. And so people out there, if we, I'm of the opinion that if we've got enough people to talk about this and know about this, it would make uh, both of us into bullshitters because it wouldn't happen. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Sorry, I muted the last few words of Cliff High because he was using a profanity that I prefer not to have on my show. So, um, but basically, he was trying to say if enough people are out there um, looking at this, that they could um, make these guys appear to be BSers, <laughs> um, for lack of a better term. And um, hopefully, that's the case. And again, this is a situation where they're looking at something coming around the end of the year that could have dramatically uh, devastating effects on this country. Who knows what that is, but it could be the entry into the you know a hot World War III. We're already in World War III, but we could go hot with uh, all the stuff going on with um, 
the idiocy of the Biden abomination, uh, sending more and more money to Ukraine, which is not being used. <laughs> it's basically being laundered. And uh, just a disgusting situation. The only thing we should be sending over there is negotiators try and help them resolve this situation of course we're the ones that caused it in the first place but uh, you know we have to sweep that under the rug but it is what it is let's see here i'm looking at oh yeah there we go ford <laughs> pauses construction of a 3.5 billion dollar electric vehicle battery plant in michigan amid scrutiny over ccp or communist chinese uh, chinese communist party involvement with the project imagine that and uh, automaking giant ford has halted construction on a 3.5 billion dollar electric vehicle battery manufacturing uh, f factory amid an ongoing probe by House Republicans over the company's ties with China. Ford announced plans to construct the 950-acre Blue Oval Battery Park in the small town of Marshall, Michigan, around 90 miles west of Detroit, on February 13th, and promised that the project would bring 2,500 jobs to the town of under 7,000 residents. But a statement from Ford spokesperson T.R. Reed has put all of this work on hold. We're pausing work and limiting spending on construction on the Marshall Project until we're confident about our ability to competitively operate the plant, said Reed. We haven't made any final decisions about the plant, invest, plant investment there. Reed added that a number of considerations went into the decision. While he did not disclose what the factors are, it should be noted that the suspension of construction on the factory coincides with an ongoing strike by the United Auto Workers. Furthermore, the pause comes as Ford has increasingly drawn fire ire from Michigan and uh, congressional Republicans alike, as well as local residents over the ties the company made with the Chinese Communist Party for the factory. To manufacture EV batteries at Blue Oval, Ford plans to rely on licensed Chinese technology from Contemporary Amperex Technology Limited, uh, CATL, a Chinese firm and the world's largest manufacturer of EV batteries. CATL has also developed some of the most advanced technology for lithium iron phosphate batteries. House Select Committee on China Chairman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin has led a probe into the facility. Following the announcement of the pause on Blue Oval's construction, Gallagher called on Ford to call off this deal for good. CATL's deep ties to CCP forced labor have no place in the, in the American market and make the company exceptionally unfit to receive American taxpayer dollars, he said. Ford has maintained that it would own the, and control the plant and that Chinese involvement would be limited strictly to being a licensor of battery cell technology. Despite CCP connections, Blue Oval Project still received over a billion in taxpayer-funded subsidies. Michigan authorities awarded the Blue Oval Project a patchwork of, work of incentives totaling $2.2 billion. This includes a $120 million grant to the Marshall Area Economic Development Alliance and an additional $630 million for site work on, uh, of the mega site included in a state supplemental budget bill.
The state government has also provided Ford with a $210 million grant, as well as a massive tax break valued at $774 million. These subsidies have come from the taxpayer-funded incentive program known as the Strategic Outreach and Attraction Reserve. The Blue Oval Project is one of four cornerstone projects meant to receive massive subsidies from this fund. Ford has denied that any of the taxpayer funding it has received would be funneled to the CCP. This program has created by or was created by Michigan Democrats, including Governor Gretchen Whitmer, in 2021, after the state lost out on $11.4 billion investment that Ford and the battery partner made in EVs and batteries at two sites in Kentucky and Tennessee. Republicans like and locals alike have celebrated the pause on construction. Michigan Republican Representative Lisa McLean wrote on Twitter that the pause was great news for Michigan and a serious blow to the CCP. Chinese technology has no place in our country, and I am glad to see this battery plant be put on hold, she added. The local opposition group to the committee uh, to save Marshall, not the mega site, uh, has also celebrated the, the news with the organizer uh, Glenn Kowalski noting that halting uh, construction has always been the group's goal. And it would be uh, the goal moving forward, Kowalski added. It's late because the land has already been heavily modified. Learn more about the link between EVs and China at robocars.news. Watch a clip from Barron's Roundtable on Fox Business as host Jack Otter interviews Ford CEO Jim Farley about the risks associated with a wide-scale shift to electric vehicles. Let's go ahead and listen to this. This might be interesting. The auto industry is feeling the pressure to deliver the next generation of cars. As technology continues to advance, automakers are shifting to electric vehicles. But how will that transition affect the bottom line? Joining me now is Ford CEO Jim Farley. So I want to start really big picture. Is Ford building electric vehicles because it wants to or it's being forced to? Do you think EVs are, are better than their internal combustion predecessors? For some vehicle, uh, some customers they are, but not for everyone. If you're if you're pulling a fifth wheel in in Wyoming, you you probably don't want to own an electric vehicle. But if you have three cars in your household and one's for you know short distances running around town or you know a hundred two hundred mile range, it's a better car. Uh, okay. So it's totally dependent on the customer. What are the benefits for that person who would for whom it's the second or third car? For most people, the, the, the operating costs are much lower. Why? Because the EV components replace very complicated engine transmissions, drive shafts, uh, differentials that break. So it's a lot, lot more reliable, a lot less cost after you buy the vehicle. Uh, you don't go to the gas station, a lot of people like that. Uh, but the biggest thing is interior's bigger because that, that engine way up front, you know, takes up a lot of room. But it's, it's for specific customers who use the vehicle specifically. It's not a monolith. People like to think about this change as like, it's gonna happen everywhere. No, that's actually not happening. I, I wanna ask you about yeah. um, the, the organization of the company. You, you reorganized things to break out EVs as a separate unit and Wall Street cheered that transparency. But it also revealed a daunting task that you are looking at something like 3 billion in losses in that unit for 2023, but you expect profitability by 2026, which in automaker land is tomorrow, um, and that you would sell one, meal, one million EVs. 
how do you get from here to there? We're in heavy investment mode, you know, building plants, battery plants. And so you invest a lot up front. And we just, we finished launching our first generation products. We're number two in the U.S. in, in volume of EVs, you know, the F-150 pickup truck that's electric called the Lightning. And of course, we had the E-Transit, America's number one van that's electric. And then we had the Mustang Mach-E. I, I think what we've learned is... Um, we have to design the second generation of vehicles that will come out in that 26 time frame totally different than the first generation. We put way too much cost in it, way too much labor content. The second thing is, um, you know, we have to just make the, the customer experience a lot better with a lot more software experience. We're shipping Blue Cruise now to the car, which is our hands-free software system, and that's really a big help for profit. Uh, the second cycle product is going to help a lot, but we're not stopping. The first generation product will get to uh, an EBIT positive on the, on the nameplate level by the end of next year. We've reduced the Mustang Mach-E cost by $5,000 a vehicle so far. So, um, you know, we're not going to wait, you know, for, till 26. It sounds as if the um, the internal combustion engines, you know, last day might be out of sight in the future. But do you have a target date at which point Ford becomes primarily an electric vehicle maker? We think that that 50% cutoff for us will be around 2030. Look, we make a lot of big SUVs and pickup trucks. Those customers will go electric a lot later. So Ford's a real different company than a lot of other companies because we, we, we have specific kinds of vehicles we make. And those kinds of vehicles, we think the internal combustion engine actually is going to grow at Ford for the next couple of years. In fact, all three areas of our business are going to grow. That's very different than a lot of other companies that are student body left. Let's go to EVs. We have a much more balanced approach because the customers we sell to are different than other companies. The Wells Fargo analyst, uh, auto analyst, estimated that an EV costs about $7,000 more than an equivalent internal combustion engine car. He noted that with battery costs coming down, he sees maybe a $2,500 shaved off of that. When do you see parity? We're getting close now. I mean, in 26 timeframe, with the way we're designing the vehicle, with advanced electrical architecture, more software that we can ship the car, we, there's so much more massively simplified. And actually, aerodynamics take a lot of cost out of the battery. Uh, beyond that $2,500, the battery themselves getting cheaper. In that 26 timeframe, we're seeing it uh, change and kind of cross over. Why? Because internal combustion engines require more and more emissions. You got to go to aluminum body panels. You have to have a lot more emission control devices on the vehicle. And, and those all cost money. So ICE vehicles are getting more expensive and EVs are coming down in, in price. That's why we think we'll, we'll cross around 26. Uh, last weekend's um, uh, meeting in Omaha, Warren Buffett said that he would not invest in the auto industry. He said it's too difficult. <laughs> he said with global competition, this big transition to EVs, he wanted to stay away. What would you tell Warren? Well, I think uh, they are an investor in BYD. They also have a lot of dealerships. So I think they're in, in the auto business. I mean, I think he's, he's right. You know, our job as leaders of, of an iconic company like Ford is to be one of the early winners. This is like investing in Apple or Samsung and O. Six, you know, before that transition of smartphones happened. And, and I think there's going to be a lot of investors say, hey, who's going to be the winner and losers? So far, we're seeing a huge shakeup. Uh, where, where the winners and losers are very different as the industry goes, especially a digital product. And, and I think there'll, there'll be a lot of investors who want to see how this plays out for the next couple of years before they place that bet. 
Now, and, and again, as, as a leader of Ford, I'm so excited. I've never had the chance to grow like this. You know, 60, 70% of our Lightning customers are new to Ford and never owned a pickup truck before. So I think, you know, my job is that, that Warren and Charlie and his team at, at, at Berkshire, you know, they, they invest in Ford uh, when they do decide to go into the auto space in big time, because it's the next big device that will be, you know, digitized. Well, if you can become the apple of automobiles, Warren will have wished that he bought the stock sooner. Jim Farley, thanks so much for coming on the show. And right along with that, we've got another article <laughs> goes with it. Uh, let me get back to it here. Um, there it is. <laughs> Electric car explodes on driveway and sets fire to family home after battery malfunction. Hmm. So you wanted an electric vehicle, huh? An electric car reportedly exploded on a driveway in a quiet residential street in the town of Bromborough, Merseyside in northwest England, setting fire to a family's home. The explosion occurred around 9.51 p.m. on the evening of Saturday, September 23rd, last Saturday, in a neighborhood of Cook's Acre, uh, with country emergency ser- or county emergency services, Merseyside Fire and Rescue Services, rushing to the family home after receiving reports that a car was on fire. Neighbors reported hearing screams and popping noises like fireworks going and seeing flashing lights when the uh, incident occurred. The house that burned down was a two-story family home. Local news outlets report that the fire completely blackened what remains of the home and its garage. Three fire engines were dispatched to the house and arrived around 10 p.m. That's not a bad response time, nine minutes. And crews immediately entered the house wearing breathing apparatus to put out the blaze. The fire was extinguished within 10 minutes of their arrival. A spokesperson for the uh, fire department noted that the emergency responders continue to carry out home fire safety checks on the properties on either side of the home that uh, caught on fire for a few hours after the primary fire was put out. They left the scene at 12.21 a.m. Local news outlets who visited the area to cover the story on September 24th noted that the house was still black with smoke. No injuries were reported. The electric car's battery malfunctioned and exploded. One man who witnessed the event said the cause of the fire was a malfunctioning electric car battery. I was in bed and heard this popping noise. It sounded like fireworks going off. I went outside with my mom, and there were bright lights with the car up in flames over the road, said the witness. The house, the owner was in the house and when it happened, but got, but got out. She told me this morning that the car was only a month old with a thousand miles on the clock and the battery, uh, car battery malfunctioned. Another woman said, I heard tires popping (laughs) and people came out to see what was going on. Someone started screaming and people rushed out to help. I saw it happen and it looked like the, like the fire was coming from where the, where they charged the car. She, she continued, the whole thing was up in flames by the end. It was so scary, and my little girl was screaming because she thought something had happened to our house. A spokesperson from Merseyside Police confirmed that the incident occurred and that it is conducting a joint investigation into the incident with the uh, local fire department to establish the cause of the fire. CCTV and witnesses and inquiries are being carried out, 
and anyone with any information or has captured the incident is asked to contact police, added the police in the statement. Hmm. Isn't that something? And here's a little added article. Biden electric vehicle push is an existential threat to the auto industry. Jason Miller of Newsline. Let's see what this is. President Biden will spend another weekend in Delaware. This is he faces, of course, that impeachment inquiry into his family's business dealings and his possible connection to all of us. Let's get you down to Capitol Hill. The latest details. Congressional correspondent Kilmeny Ducart. Now, Kilmeny, a lot of reactions coming in still on this move by Speaker McCarthy. Indeed, Bianca, and we know that House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer is going to be taking the lead on this investigation out of all of those three committees. And what he'll be focusing on is investigating the president himself. The committee tweeting that Joe Biden is the brand that Hunter Biden and the Biden family sold around the world to enrich themselves. And as millions of dollars were pouring in, Joe Biden dined and spoke with his son's business associate to send signals of access, influence and power. This is abuse of public office. The House Judiciary and the House Ways and Means Committee, meanwhile, they're going to be focusing on the alleged cover-up by federal agencies. And that will no doubt include plenty of questions for the Attorney General Merrick Garland when he testifies on Capitol Hill next week about allegations that the Justice Department slow-walked its investigation into Hunter Biden and were prevented reportedly from pursuing information related to President Biden himself. Here is part of my conversation with Chairman Comer. We believe from what the whistleblowers told us that when the IRS agent said this is undoubtedly going to head to Joe Biden, that's when the Department of Justice stepped in and said stand down. Uh, and we've heard that over and over. Uh, the National Archives have implied to us the that the Department of Justice told them to not cooperate with us. Well, that person more than likely was Merrick Garland. So we want to know if, in fact, that was Merrick Garland. So we have a lot of questions about the two-tier system of justice that Merrick Garland has presided over. And uh, we'll see how he answers those questions. Meanwhile, the ranking Democrat on the Oversight Committee, Congressman Jamie Raskin, issuing this 14-page report on Monday saying Comer's investigation is full of baseless and sensationalistic claims. He goes on to say that other members have conceded that the committee failed to produce any evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden and have called into question the credibility of Chairman Comer's allegation and the integrity of pursuing an impeachment inquiry. Republican Congressman Daryl Issa, after that closed-door GOP conference meeting on Thursday morning, telling reporters what he believes the president is guilty of. There's no question at all that the president is guilty of making false statements uh, publicly. He said he, he had no correspondence with his, his son about business. That clearly shows not to be true. Uh, so, you know, has the president lied? Yes. Or misled? Yes. And Bianca, we've seen Republicans all along defending this investigation on Capitol Hill amid a lot of questions from members of the media and certainly attacks from Republicans saying that this hasn't produced any evidence because this is part of their investigation to answer a lot of the allegations and the questions that have come up again in those three separate investigations that have been conducted 
by the House Oversight Judiciary Committee and Ways and Means Committee. And their intention is to follow the facts to see where it leads. Coming to Ducart live on Capitol Hill. It's been a busy week, Kim. Thank you. Well, President Joe Biden also now dealing with the political ramifications of his son, Hunter, being indicted on those three federal gun charges as we broke that news for you here yesterday on Newsline. Here are the charges. You can see them up on your screen. Count one knowingly lying on a federal government form while he allegedly said he was neither a user nor addicted to narcotics. Max penalty, 10 years, $250,000 fine. Second count knowingly lying on a federal government form required to be kept by a federal licensed dealer. And you see here the uh, max penalty there, five years, $250,000 fine. The third count he was indicted on yesterday, possessing a firearm while addicted to narcotic drugs, carrying the same penalty as the second count there. And again, as you watch this uh, break here on Newsline, obviously at the same time, what was happening was President Biden here departing for Baltimore. Yes, he was trying to deflect, of course, the heat of Hunter's indictment. Take a listen. The country should know the facts. They should know the choice between Bidenomics and Maganomics. Maganomics is more extreme than anything America has ever seen before. Let me close with this. And there's a lot more I know we can talk about. I wish I had a chance to take all your questions, but I'm going to get in real trouble if I do that. So that was uh, his speech yesterday in Baltimore on Bidenomics and Maganomics, uh, a site all too familiar. However, the 80-year-old president seemed again lost and a bit confused on Wrapping up there, which way he was expected to get off the stage. And again, after that, he did shake some hands, schmooze. But reporters were there trying to get an answer on Hunter's indictment. Take a listen. Mr. President. Mr. President. nothing there uh, in Largo, but we do know uh, today there will be a press briefing scheduled at 1 p.m. We'll monitor that, bring you any new details. And Corrine Jean-Pierre's first comments on Hunter's indictment, if she even acknowledges it today. We will be watching that closely. All right, let's bring in now senior advisor to former President Trump, Jason Miller, with us today. Jason, uh, welcome in on a Friday. Good to see you. Bianca, thanks for having me. So we have this indictment of the first son, Hunter, three federal gun charges. There's been a lot of criticisms about this, though, that there are other much more serious crimes that special counsel Weiss could be charging him with. And this is the one that doesn't tie back to President Joe Biden. So uh, is this just part of a way to try and feign that they're being hard on Hunter? What's your take on what they decided to charge him with? And if there will be more charges, do you have any feelings that maybe foreign agent, you know, FARA uh, violations could be coming? Well, Bianca, who would have thought that it would take Hunter Biden to make Democrats all of a sudden big supporters of the Second Amendment? You can't turn on the TV right now without seeing a Democrat official saying, no, 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 that's not what the framers had in mind. These charges are unconstitutional. They will not hold up. In fact, former Obama ethics czar Norm Eisen was on CNN last night making that claim, which, by the way, all these guys have been gun grabbers their entire life, and now they're trying to stick up for Hunter, so it's a little comical. But in all seriousness, uh, these are uh, very real charges. We shouldn't want anyone who's a crackhead uh, to have a firearm. I don't think that's a good idea. And I think most people would, uh, would agree with that. 
here's what's going on. President Trump and Republicans have been criticizing the very apparent two-tiered system of justice for months now. We now have four of these politically motivated indictments, and I think Merrick Garland is feeling the heat. And what this is, is try to show they're doing something with regard to the Hunter Biden allegations. But again, as you pointed out, nothing goes back to Joe, nothing goes to Farah, nothing goes to selling access. That's what's important. Not these gun charges. Well, yeah, That's not really what Merrick Garland's trying to do here. Merrick Garland will be in front of the House Judiciary Committee next Wednesday. Uh, so clearly there will be some questions there as, as you point back to where, you know, this goes and what the future is. Uh, we know President Biden will be speaking about the strike in a few minutes and, and addressing that. But just a really bad week uh, for President Biden. We saw the workers out there. He claims to be pro-union. And now there's stronger calls for him to uh, not actually be on the ballot. Let's take folks first to uh, President Biden. Listen in first, Jason. Stand by. Negotiations between the United Auto Workers and the big three auto companies. You know, I've been in touch with both parties over since this began over the last few weeks and over the last the past decade. Auto companies have uh, seen record profits, including the last few years because of the extraordinary skill and sacrifices of the UAW workers. But those record profits have not been shared fairly, in my view, with those workers, just as the Treasury Department has released a report pointing out that the most comprehensive report ever dealing with how unions are good for both union workers and non-union workers to and the overall economy. Unions raise workers' wages, they said, incomes, increase home ownership, increase retirement savings, increase access to critical benefits like sick leave and child care, and reduce inequality, all of which strengthen our economy for all workers. That's because unions, unions raise standards across the workplaces and entire industries, pushing up wages and strengthening benefits for everyone. That's why strong unions are critical to the growing economy and growing from the middle out, the bottom up, not the top down. That's especially true as we transition to a clean energy future, which we're in the process of doing. I believe that transition should be fair and a win-win, excuse me, for auto workers and auto companies. But I also believe the contract agreement must lead to a vibrant made-in-America future that promotes good, strong, middle-class jobs that workers can raise a family on. Where the UAW remains at the heart of our economy and where the big three companies continue to lead in innovation, excellence, quality, and leadership. Last night, after negotiations broke down, the UAW announced a targeted strike at a few big three auto plants. Let's be clear. No one wants a strike. Say it again. No one wants a strike. But I respect workers' right to use their options under the collective bargaining system. And I understand the workers' frustration. Over generations, auto workers sacrificed so much to keep the industry alive and strong, especially through the economic crisis and the pandemic. Workers deserve a fair share of the benefits they help create for an enterprise. I do appreciate that the parties have been working around the clock. I, and when I first called them at the very first day of the negotiations, I said, please stay at the table as long as you can to try to work this out. And the, they've been around the clock and the companies have made some significant offers. But I believe they should go further to ensure record corporate profits mean record contracts for the UAW. I say that again, record corporate profits, which they have, should be shared by record contracts for the UAW. And just as we're building an economy of the future, we need labor agreements for the future. It's my hope that the parties can return to the negotiation table to forge a win-win agreement. 
to continue our active engagement, I'm, dis I'm, I'm dispatching two members of my team to Detroit, Acting Labor Secretary Julie Hsu and White House Senior Advisor Gene Sperling, both of whom have been involved up to now, to offer their full support for the parties in reaching a contract. The bottom line is that auto workers help create America's middle class. They deserve a contract that sustains them in the middle class. Thank you very much. That's all I'm going to say. Thank you. Jason, thanks for uh, standing by uh, with us. You know, it was just on Labor Day when we heard the president say he wasn't worried that a strike was happening. Now it's here. And, you know, the EV push that he's continuing to talk about just moments ago, uh, it's clear auto companies are saying the painful cuts that they have had is, is a cost of the transition to EV. We know President Trump has talked about this, saying that it's insane electric vehicle mandate at their top non-negotiable demand in any strike. And Trump is saying that that basically the U.S. auto industry will cease to exist if this current administration continues down the path of EV. Yeah, you're exactly right. And this EV push is an existential threat to the American auto industry. And Biden, as we saw in his comments just a moment ago, doesn't seem to get that. He's pushing full speed ahead on that. I guess if you kind of uh, pare back some of the rigmarole, he's trying to say just uh, make the corporations pick up the cost, in which case then they just move jobs to different states or they move them uh, to different countries. But I want to point out one other thing, Bianco. You talked about earlier Biden's bad week, not only the UAW, but Hunter. We also had additional inflation numbers coming out. That's right. The, the challenge that whether it be the UAW workers mm. or people all around the country are facing is their paychecks are not keeping up with their basic expenses, whether it be rent or a mortgage or going to the grocery store or putting gas uh, into their car because most people still uh, drive gas-powered vehicles. And so with this 18% cumulative inflation that workers have seen under Biden, when the paychecks aren't matching up, and EV push, this insane yeah. EV push is threatening their livelihoods. You can see why they're on strike. Chase Miller, uh, obviously a lot you'll be talking about on the campaign trail with all of this news against uh, former President Trump's biggest rival here. But this uh, this strike, five billion could be uh, costing our economy in just 10 days. It is certainly severe. Good to have you in. Thanks for staying by and reacting to President Biden with us. We'll see you back here real soon. Alrighty. So, as usual, <laughs> the usurper-in-chief is bowing to the will of um, the green tree-hugger movement trying to push electric vehicles on everybody. And either should or does know full well that there's no way that the infrastructure that we currently have can even come close to getting rid of uh, the... Uh, internal combustion cars and go strictly to electric vehicles in the time frame that they're looking at and we're just going to have more reports of cars blowing up on the driveways and in garages and everything else because the technology is still not capable of doing what it's supposed to do safely and then of course you got the uh, driverless cars and the ones with the autopilots and everything that are running off cliffs and driving into trees and and uh, killing people so <laughs> just more insanity just keeps going just keeps going but let's uh, have a look here former foster child who was raped tortured and abused for decades found dead leaves behind two children 
sad situation. Beautiful young lady. In 2019, we covered the horrendous story that was uncovered by investigative reporter Kathy Curran working in Boston for WCVB ABC5, who discovered that the foster and adoptive home run uh, by Susan and Raymond Blowen, or Blowen of Oxford, Oxford, Massachusetts, was torturing children, including locking them up in dog cages and sexually abusing them. Ain't that just wonderful? She interviewed some of the former foster children who have uh, some who have now filed lawsuits against the Bluens. And uh, these former foster children talked about the house of horrors that they grew up in. The truly evil part of this story is that the state of Massachusetts knew what was going on in the home as the foster father had already been convicted of child sex abuse. And, and yet they allowed it to continue. Watch this five-and-a-half-minute report by Kathy Curran from 2019 to get a grasp on just how evil this place was. Former foster parents and a third person all arrested the past few months in a horrific child abuse case first brought to light by Five Investigate. Two years ago, our Kathy Curran began investigating the state system that failed several of these vulnerable children, and tonight she uncovers more red flags and more concerns. Three people have been criminally charged since we began reporting on this case. A civil suit was filed just last week, and some child welfare advocates wonder if enough's being done for foster children to prevent this from happening again. Did you abuse any of those children? She's a former foster mother and registered nurse who was supposed to love and nurture the vulnerable children in her care. But Susan Bluen, her husband, Ray. Mr. Bluen, did you think this was all going to go away? And her former boyfriend, Philip Paquette. statutory rape of a child, two counts. Are accused of abusing and torturing many of the foster children who were cycled through their Oxford home. John Williams and his brother, Nathan, were placed with the Bluens in the late 90s when they were young boys, already traumatized, taken away from their birth parents, only to be harmed again. What's been the harm? We lost our childhoods, Kathy. We, we, lost, we lost what could have been and everyone responsible, including DCF, and everyone in the Commonwealth Administration should be ashamed. Mr. Paquette, how could you harm an innocent child? The alleged unspeakable crimes, child rape, beatings, being thrown in a dog cage and more hidden in state records and police reports for decades until five investigates began shining the light on this house full of secrets. Subjected to a massive amount of torturous and sadistic abuse. Putting a pillow over his head to stop Nathan from screaming. The blue ones, you know, they're heartless individuals. You know, I'm wondering if I'm going to get beat, you know what I mean? And if I'm going to have to sleep in the dog cage tonight or if they're going to try to feed me dog food. You know, I feel like I was robbed of my childhood. Records we obtained show many of the children told social workers and teachers they were being abused. The state's own investigations found evidence of abuse, and Ray Bluen even pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting two of the girls in the home in 2003. Despite these red flags and others, the Department of Children and Families kept foster kids in the Bluens' home. These people were sick. 
you know, and I didn't even know that. I thought all of it was normal because I lived with them since I was two weeks old. This case reflects negligence on the part of virtually every adult that ever came in contact with these kids. Child welfare advocate Maureen Flatley says the state and the abusers caused immeasurable harm. The agency failed by any measure to provide these kids with safety. They're all going to experience trauma for the rest of their lives. The victims' voices were never truly heard until two years ago when we began exposing what happened inside this home. In the wake of our reporting, the state launched a review of the case. New criminal charges were filed and other survivors came forward who say much of the harm could have been prevented by the state because they disclosed their abuse years before many of the children were placed here. She would usually smack me across the face for as, pretty much as hard as she could and knock me off the stool. Michael Moore was removed from the Bluens' home in 1995 after he told a teacher that he was worried he'd be beaten over a bad report from school. He spoke to us from a Florida jail where he was serving a short sentence for bad I checks. Was, I was terrified for myself, to be honest. Michael remained in the system his entire childhood, never finding a permanent home. While the state allowed the Bluens to care for children for nearly 10 more years. I'd say I'm disgusted with the state. I shouldn't have to rehabilitate myself because of the damage that somebody else did to me. Even more troubling, our investigation found allegations of abuse involving a young girl named Jewel who was severely disabled and kept in the basement. Michael's sister Jessica told investigators Jewel had been kicked and hit by Sue Bluen, but Bluen was never charged. Get the camera out of my face. I remember crying on the end of Jewel's bed, just praying, crying. One of the most troubling things today is that some of the caseworkers that worked on this case still work for DCF. Mm -hmm. So any suggestion that this could never happen again is absolutely laughable. What does the state owe these kids? There's so much damage that was done. Everything. They owe them everything. And a spokesperson told us DCF knows it can't undo the damage, but they're hoping to learn from these survivors. Secretary Sutters has personally met with many of them and has offered them resources. The criminal investigation launched after our reporting is ongoing, and the state has suspended Sue Bluen's nursing license. Kathy Curran, 5 Investigates. Man, Kathy's investigation into this story has con continued since we published this report back in the end of 2019, and her work clearly shows that this is business as usual in Massachusetts' foster care system, and that what happened with the Bluens is not a rare incident. They have a uh, Massachusetts Department of Children and Families Registry of Alleged Perpetrators, 41,625. One of the things Kathy Kern's investigative work has uncovered is that Massachusetts Department of Child and Children and Families has a secret, excuse me, secret list of people in the system who are suspected as child abusers, and that there are over 40,000 people on that list, including the Blue Ones who were registered foster parents. And here's another uh, 
They are some of the worst child abusers in the state. Some in the shadows, never convicted. The thousands of names and the information about these troubling cases kept on this secret state list. And five investigates Kathy Curran discovered many are moving freely in society, possibly putting children at risk. A list filled with the names of tens of thousands of people accused of abusing or neglecting children across the state. That's disgusting. And it's all a secret. The worry is uh, continued abuse, continued injustice. The list, known as the Registry of Alleged Perpetrators, is kept by the Department of Children and Families to track suspected child abusers in the system. Five Investigates has discovered right now it includes the names of almost 42,000 people. An alleged perpetrator is added to the registry if DCF investigators have reasonable cause to believe the person neglected or abused a child and if the case is handed over to the district attorney's office for possible prosecution. It doesn't matter if there's a conviction or even a charge. Five investigates found the registry includes the names of the suspects in that horrific case of child abuse we exposed in the state-licensed foster home of Sue and Ray Bluen in Oxford. Get off my property! Sue, Ray, their daughter Jennifer, and Sue's boyfriend, Philip Paquette, were all added to the registry in 2004 after years of DCF substantiating sexual, physical, and mental abuse. State licensing agencies and places they've worked since had no idea the documented abuse hidden in DCF's secret registry. They're, they're outright hiding abuse, neglect. Sarah Fournier is stunned and angry. She recalls the horror of being physically abused as a young foster child inside the Bluens' home and witnessing the abuse of other children. She says she was re-traumatized decades later when she crossed paths with Sue Bluen at UMass Memorial in Worcester. Bluen continued to work as a licensed nurse in the state despite being on the alleged perpetrators list, working in the NICU where Sarah's baby was receiving care. I had to relive my childhood trauma and if she was on that list and she was allowed to work there, it's just disgusting. I feel like this, the Commonwealth has given them this magical cloak of, of almost forgiveness. Um, and they're walking around like they're normal citizens and they're not. John Williams is another survivor of the Bluens home. It's like giving someone a slap on the wrist and giving them an expunged identity. The Bluen's daughter, Jennifer, who lives in New Hampshire, is also on the registry. She was charged as a juvenile with sexually abusing a foster child. The case was dismissed. The victim says she was never notified about the court hearing. A check with the New Hampshire Department of Education shows she's a licensed paraprofessional allowed to teach in the state. Once they leave the bubble of DCF, they can do anything they want. Child welfare advocate Maureen Flatley. Anytime you have someone who needs to be certified by a state agency, either in this state or in another state, that information should be made available. It's like they have a clean slate. It's like they have a free pass. 
It's not just a clean slate, it's a free pass. DCF tells us access to the information is limited by law and regulations. Staff can use it to screen foster parents, adoptive parents, and for other reasons, but no other departments or agencies can without approval from the commissioner of DCF. Sources tell us the Bluins are on the list with people like Elsa Oliver, the mother of five-year-old Jeremiah Oliver, and her boyfriend, Alberto Sierra. Jeremiah's remains were found in a suitcase dumped on the side of a highway in 2014. They're just being recirculated and putting other people at risk. It's scary, actually. Right now, the Department of Early Education is the only agency that has an agreement with DCF to access the registry. The Department of Public Health and the New Hampshire Department of Education tell us they're working to gain access. And we haven't received any comment from the Bluins or Philip Paquette. Kathy Curran, Five Investigates. Last month, August 2023, four of the children who had lived through this horror won a $7 million settlement against the state. That's good. Unfortunately, they should have gotten against these uh, people as well, the blue ones, and put them out of business. But one of those children will not be able to make use of that settlement because she was found dead, leaving behind two daughters. Her death is apparently being reported as a suicide or drug overdose but her mother has different opinion. They killed my daughter is what they did, Gowan said. If it wasn't for them, Christine would be alive today. Let's see what they have to say about this. Case, it is incredibly disturbing. Children complaining about alleged abuse inside a foster home for years and no one was listening. I think we're all wondering how this could have ever happened. Um, I think that this was just a complete system failure. The details of what allegedly unfolded inside this Oxford foster home are horrific. Kids locked in dog crates, submerged in ice baths, and forced to perform sex acts. Unbelievable torture, sexual and physical violence. Four former foster children have now reached a $7 million settlement with the state. Their lawyer says the Department of Children and Families knew about the abuse in the late 90s and early 2000s, but kept placing kids there. And they've been begging people for years to listen to them. And it really wasn't until Channel 5 listened to what had happened to them that they were finally believed. Over several years, Five Investigates uncovered thousands of records documenting the alleged abuse and the missed opportunities to stop it. Susan and Raymond Bluen, along with another man who lived with them, were charged after Five Investigates reporting. In a statement, DCF says there is no amount that can remedy the trauma endured by the now adults who lived in the Bluen home nearly 20 years ago. The Department of Children and Families hopes the resolution of this case is a source of strength and comfort to all involved. We hope that this case inspires other children who are abused to know that if they come forward, they will be believed too. So this is certainly a significant settlement for these former foster children, but their lawyer says they all continue to suffer to this day. Mother blames DCF, state licensed foster parents, for death of adult daughter. Mother Cheryl Gollin says that the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families and former foster parents Ray and Sue Boone uh, were responsible for the death of their daughter, Christine. Uh, 
Warning, this story contains information that is graphic in nature and could be disturbing to some. A heartbroken mother says the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families killed her adult daughter. Cheryl Gollin uh, blames the DCF for the uh, death of her daughter, Christine, last year, as well as the state-licensed state foster home she was in as a child. They killed my daughter is what they did, Gollin said. If it wasn't for them, Christine would be alive today. Christine was a loving mother of two young girls, but Gollin says she was never able to overcome the trauma of the horrific uh, abuse she suffered as a child decades ago inside the state-licensed foster home of Ray and Susan Bolin. She was placed in foster home when she got uh, when she was just two weeks old and struggled her entire life to overcome the abuse and trauma she suffered as a child there, Gollin said. Christine was abused in every possible way, she said, sexually, physically, mentally, verbally, emotionally. You don't take kids in unless you want to take care of them and nurture and love them, especially at two weeks old. The state failed and there were many warning signs. Court records report that the uh, rec court records, police reports and DCF records obtained by uh, NBC 10 Boston investigators document a trial of a uh, trail of abuse and foster of foster children inside the walls of Boone's home and red flags missed by and ignored by DCF. Christine was one of dozens of foster kids the DCF cycled through the Boone's home over the years. Christine was 15 years old when she ran away from the Boone's home and Gollin and her husband opened their home to raise her. Gollin said she came uh, to them with only one photo of her entire childhood and traumatic memories. Her foster father, Ray Bullen, uh, pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting her in 20, 2003. Bullen's daughter was also accused of molesting Christine and charged as a juvenile, but those charges were ultimately dismissed. Gollin said the Bullens took away Christine's life, trust, and confidence. She was never loved, Gollin said. Ray Bullen moved out of the home and registered as a sex offender, but the DCF left children in the Bullens' home despite the conviction and charges and substantiated reports of abuse. Christine struggled with uh, substance abuse, uh, substance use disorder for years, but was back on track working in a nursing home when she overdosed and died at the age of 35 last October after using cocaine laced with fentanyl. She was one of four uh, former foster children who filed a civil suit against DCF and the social workers involved in her case. The suit resulted in a historic $7 million settlement last month. They finally killed her. She was found on a hill all by herself. It was one of the hardest days of my life, says Gollin. Mother blames mass DCF for this, uh, adult's death. Here's a report on that. Tonight we're hearing from a heartbroken mother who says the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families killed her daughter. And this is all connected to that so-called foster home, House of Horrors in Oxford, where the state just agreed to a historic $7 million settlement with the victims. NBC 10 investigator Kathy Curran, who first exposed this troubling case years ago, is here now with the story. And Glenn, Christine Bluen was placed in that foster home when she was just two weeks old and struggled her entire life to overcome the abuse and trauma she suffered as a child there. Christine died of an overdose months before that settlement with DCF, and her mother says the state is to blame. They killed my daughter, is what they did. If it wasn't for them, Christine would be alive today. 
Cheryl Gollin blames the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families and her daughter Christine's former foster family for her death. Christine was a loving mother of two young girls, but Cheryl says she was never able to overcome the trauma of the horrific abuse she suffered as a child decades ago inside the state-licensed foster home of Ray and Susan Bluen. The children say they were physically, mentally, sexually abused. Nothing you want to say? Christine was abused in every way possible. Sexually, physically, mentally, verbally, emotionally. Court records, police reports, and DCF records obtained by the NBC10 investigators document a trail of abuse of foster children inside the walls of the Bluens home and red flags missed and ignored by DCF. Christine was one of the dozens of foster kids cycled through the home throughout the years. You don't take kids in unless you, you want to take care of them. The state failed. There were so many warning signs. We went through a dehumanizing situation. John Williams lived with the Bluens during the same time as Christine until he ran away in 2004. Strangled, tortured. Uh, we were put in dog cages. That's the only picture we have of Mummy when she was a little girl. Christine was 15 years old when she ran away from the Bluens home, and Cheryl and her husband opened their home to raise her. She came to the Gollins with only one photo of her entire childhood and traumatic memories. Her foster father, Ray Bluen, pleaded guilty to sexually assaulting her in 2003. Bluen's daughter was also accused of molesting Christine and charged as a juvenile, but those charges were ultimately dismissed. Dismissed. You've been convicted of sexually assaulting two of the girls. Did you also sexually assault one of the boys? Ray Bluen moved out of the house and registered as a sex offender. But DCF left children in the Bluen's home despite that conviction, criminal charges, and substantiated reports of abuse here. What was taken away from Christine from living in that home? Her life. Her trust her confidence. She was never loved. Christine struggled with substance use disorder for years, but was back on track working at a nursing home when she overdosed and died at the age of 35 after using cocaine laced with fentanyl last October. They finally killed her. She was found on a hill all by herself. It was one of the hardest days of my life. If you could say something to mommy, what would you say? I love her. And a spokesperson for DCF referred us to a previous statement saying there's nothing that can remedy the trauma endured by the children who were in the Bluen's home. Susan and Ray Bluen and another man have criminal cases pending. In this case, they've entered not guilty pleas. Kathy Curran, NBC10 Investigators. That's just a sad, sad situation. And it's happening over and over and over throughout this country where DCF systems are being used to traffic children constant allegations of sexual abuse physical abuse mental abuse you name it and while there are civil judgments like this one seven million dollars the people that were involved in this the people that perpetrated this are no doubt still working there 
and nothing's happening to them. The taxpayers, who are innocent in this case, are the ones footing the bill. The workers at those places that negligently put these children into these facilities are the ones that should be charged. They're the ones that should be sued. And they're the ones that should be paying when there's a judgment, not the taxpayers. And that's the problem with this, with government. The people, the perp, the people that do these things, that perpetrate this stuff, that let it go on, never answer for their deeds. There's just a financial payout, which comes from the people that are innocent, the taxpayers. They had no knowledge, no culpability. And the perpetrators continue on and continue to do the same thing over and over again. Please don't believe the lies that what happened to Christine and other children was a system failure. No, it was not. Glaringly absent from all of these this otherwise very thorough investigative reporting is who is responsible for putting these children in the system and keeping them there exactly and this is the remainder of the thing i didn't even know it was coming but that you know i'm asking the same questions they are uh, keeping them there as they are sexually abused and trafficked and you never will hear that just as you will never see a client list published of Jeffrey Epstein's network and business because the list of names that allows this to happen goes all the way up to the highest levels in politics and business and the so-called leaders of our nation. This was not a system failure. This is how the system works. And it is the reason it continues to exist. It is a multi-billion dollar child trafficking business. I've been reporting on this for over a decade now. This is uh, Brian Silhaven, the, the uh, editor of Health Impact News. But before, or but people prefer to watch fiction, a fictional movie about child trafficking instead, as they continue to support the actual people in power who allow this system to continue. Yeah, just like when you look back on the... Um, uh the reports about biden and his uh you know they want to impeach him and all this stuff not one mention in the impeachment documents about how he knowingly allowed people to be lied to and allowed people to be told that these injections were safe and effective when they were in fact killing people and biden was involved he made the statements himself his little whispering thing get vaccinated if you did the vaccine you won't get covid and look at him he's been vaxxed up the wazoo and he's had covid four or five times now why don't we hear anything about that why don't we hear anything in the alternate media about how biden and company covered things up and how you know trump was aware of it too i'm sure i mean this was right at you know when when those jabs were released the fda had knowledge before october of 2020 while trump was still president 
the FDA had a, a list of uh, potential or what side effects they were looking for. And let me see if I can find that real quickly. Uh, shouldn't be too difficult, I think. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Let me go to my trusty COVID file. If my system is running kind of slow for some reason, it doesn't want to open up. Come on. Come on, come, 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 come. Why is this thing going so slow? There we go. Um, <laughs> got a whole bunch of them. Gosh darn it. <laughs> I clicked the wrong thing. Hmm. Trying to remember what the name of the file was. And nothing's working. Man, nothing's working this morning. I'm clicking this thing and nothing's happening. Good grief. I apologize. I should have restarted my computer. But anyway, there was a monster list that was a slideshow presented to the FDA that had um, a boatload of uh, things that the uh, the FDA and the manufacturers were all aware of. And for some reason, none of that ever made it out. All it was is safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. And not a single thing about the dangers that they full well knew were going to be affecting people that took these jabs. And it's absolutely disgusting that to this day, these same people are still saying the jabs are safe and effective. If you take the jabs, you won't get sick. And just wait. When this new thing, whatever it is, you know, whether it's the so-called um, variant from Canada or whatever it happens to be, they'll roll out the same thing all over again. Absolutely disgusting. And it turns out the reason things weren't responding is I still had the sharing thing on on the free conference call, and that was slowing everything down and screwing things up. But I'm still having a hard time finding that file. I don't know why. I should keep that thing right on my desktop. I thought I did. <laughs> but, um, oh well. Could have swore I had that thing right here. Maybe not. Just scrolling through here. Nope. Hmm. Oh well. Yeah, they knew full well. There was a boatload of information available, and 
they chose to ignore it, cover it up, complete people, compete, uh, keep people from having any clue what was going on. And as a result, <laughs> millions and millions and millions of people died. Lots and lots of Trump supporters took the jab solely because Trump said it was safe and effective. And they paid the price. Pretty disgusting as well. But, you know, that's the price of not doing your own research. And unfortunately, too many people out there today are like that. And the funny thing is, is they attack people that actually do their own research. Now, I have read 14 or 15 books on COVID, several books on the fallacies and the fraud of vaccines, and I'll have people that have never done one iota, one second worth of research into the issues of COVID or vaccines, other than what they've gotten from the lamestream media, listening to TV and that kind of stuff. And they will attack me <laughs> for telling them, trying to tell them the truth and warn them about the dangers, the fraud of COVID and the dangers of uh, taking these jabs. It's ludicrous. But that's human nature today. Bubis Americanus just simply believes everything they're told and attacks anybody who's trying to um, tell them the truth because it flies in the face of what they've been led to believe. And as a result, they can't handle the cognitive dissonance that they experience when their belief system is challenged with facts and evidence. <laughs> And it's a, it's a sad situation that we have to deal with that kind of thing. But that's what happens when you allow the uh, socialist indoctrination camps known as the public fool system to have control over the lives of young skulls full of mush, as Rush, Rush Limbaugh used to put it, for many, many hours a day for their entire childhood lives. It's just a sad situation. But that's what we end up with when people neglect their duties and just uh, turn the, the rearing of their children over to government shills. But there you have it. You know, that's the situation we're in these days. It's a sad situation, but it is what we've got. And uh, I don't know that there's any way out of it at this point, unfortunately. Well, I'm still looking here, and for some reason, all of those documents <laughs> flat out disappeared. I can't find any of them anymore. That's really strange. I don't know what happened. 
But anyway, I'm sure I'll find it right after the show's over. <laughs> oh, well. But we've got all kinds of problems in this country. And just, you know, the, the child, so-called child protective services or whatever you want to call it. There are different names in every state. But this beautiful young lady who was abused her entire life finally seemed to be getting things back on track, but never really recovered, and then dies of an overdose of cocaine laced with fentanyl. Leaving behind two daughters. Just one of thousands of children who have been abused by the system and again the system just keeps doing it they aren't shutting the system down they're not charging the people who are involved they just give an award that the people who had nothing to do with it the taxpayers have to pay no incentive whatsoever to change things absolute insanity here's an interesting one grandma survived the great depression because her supply chain was local and she now knew how to do stuff <laughs> imagine that and a time capsule from the 1930s what's different now if we compare health and endurance, well-being, security, general attitudes, family and community ties, and values, we would conclude that it is we who are impoverished. We're taking care of my 92-year-old mother, mother-in-law here at home. She has the usual aches and pains and infirmities of advanced age, but her mind and memory are still sharp. Her memories of her childhood are like a time capsule from the 1930s. My mom-in-law has always lived in the same general community here in Hawaii. She's never lived more than about 10 miles from the house where she was born, long since torn down, in 1931. Listening to her memories and asking for more details is to be, trans is to be transported back to the 1930s, an era of widespread poverty unrelated to the Great Depression. Many people were poor before the Depression, they were working hard, but their incomes were low. Prior to the tourist boom initiated by statehood and affordable airfare, Hawaii's economy was classically colonial. Large plantations owned by a handful of wealthy families and or corporations known as the Big Five employed thousands of laborers to raise and harvest sugar cane and pineapple. Pearl Harbor, Hickam Air Base, and the Schofield Barracks were large military bases on Oahu. Travel between the islands was expensive, which were ferries, and each island was largely self-sufficient. Even taking a bus for the 12-mile ride to the island's sole city was a rare luxury, an excursion that occurred only a few times a year. Plantation workers were not yet unionized in the 1930s, and wages were around $12 or $20 a month for back-breaking field labor, work performed by both men and women typical on first and second generation immigrant communities of, of the time families were large uh, generally large 
Six or seven children was common, and nine or ten children per family was not uncommon. Many families lived in modest plantation provided camps of two-bedroom houses. Gardens were not a hobby. They were an essential source of food to feed a table of hungry kids and adults. Candy, snacks, sodas, etc. were treats reserved for special occasions and holidays. Kids usually went barefoot because shoes were outside the household's limited budget. Thank goodness they lived in Hawaii. <laughs> Staples were bought at the company store or one of the few privately owned groceries on credit and paid off when the plantation paid wages. Credit issued by banks was unknown. Neighborhoods, uh, Kumai, uh, might uh, pool a few dollars from each family every year and offer the sum of the, to the highest uh, bidder or by lottery. Those households that scraped up enough were open to small businesses, often worked uh, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, or equivalent 14 hours, six days a week. Neighbors helped with births and deaths. Since no one could even dream of owning a car, transport was limited. Children and adults walked or biked miles to school or work. Many sole proprietors made a living delivering vegetables, meat, and fish around the neighborhoods. This distribution system is still present in rural France, where my brother and sister-in-law lived for many years. Each vendor would arrive on a set day, time, and housewives would gather to buy from the proprietor's jitney or truck. Children could eye a few candies lovingly, and if they were luckily, lucky, a few pennies would be given to them to buy a candy. Locally baked bread was delivered by boys. Milk was delivered by small local dairies. Nostalgia was a powerful force but I don't think we can uh, dismiss the general happiness of my mom-in-law's childhood as airbrushed impoverishment. The poverty seems, to, uh, seems obvious to us now, but at the time it was, a norm, was normal life. Everyone was in the same general socioeconomic class. The plantation manager lived in a mansion with servants, but those with wealth were few and far between. In other words, wealth and income inequality was extreme, but the class structure was flat. The 99% had very similar incomes and opportunities. Both were limited. Employment was stable. Community ties and values were strong without anyone even noticing. And everyone had enough to eat, though not as much as they might have wanted, of course. The secure plantation structure of work and community was still firmly in place in 1969-1970 when I lived on the pineapple plantation of Lanai and picked pineapple with my high school classmates in the summer. And so I was fortunate to experience it firsthand. My Lanai classmates speak fondly of the sense of loss when they uh, recall their youth. Life was secure and protected, and with ionization of the workforce, the wages sufficient enough for frugal households to save enough for their, to send their children to college off-island. I can personally attest that fond memories of that of 1970s plantation life are not distorted by nostalgia. These memories are accurate recollections of far more secure, safe, and nourishing place and time. Compared to today, the typical 1930s diet was locally grown, raised, and therefore rich in micronutrients. Grains such as rice and flour came from afar, but other than canned fish and similar goods, food was local and fresh. Little, if any, was wasted. 
People typically worked physically demanding jobs that burned off a lot of calories. There are many people 90 plus years of age in our neighborhood. My mom-in-law's brother, uh, like many of the men in his age bracket, was a World War II veteran and uh, of the famed 442nd unit, died last year at 96, despite smoking a half a pack of cigarettes daily until the end. A a neighbor and friend just passed away at 99. He was also a uh, 442nd veteran. Our neighbor cared for her daughter and son-in-law just like us, just turned 100. These people are generally healthy and active until the end of their lives. If we look for casual factors in or causal factors in their advanced age and generally good health, we cannot ignore the high-quality, near-zero processed food diets of their youth and their strong foundations in community ties and values. If we compare the financial and material wealth of most uh, most enjoy today with the limited income and assets of the pre-war era, we would conclude they lived in extreme uh, in extreme poverty and their lives must have been wretched as a consequence. But if we compare uh, health and endurance, well-being, security, general attitudes, family and community ties and values, we would conclude that it is we who are impoverished and it was their lives that were rich in these essentials of human life. Very, very true. The world has changed since the 1930s, of course. Materially, our wealth and opinions or options uh, of what to do with our lives are off the charts compared to the 1930s. But if we look at health, security, well-being, community ties, social cohesion, and civic virtue, our, our era seems insecure, disordering, and deranging. The irony is that those who have grown weary of our divisive, rage-inducing socioeconomic system yearn for all that's been lost in the rise to material wealth and opportunities to spend that wealth. Those who grasp the emptiness of spectacle and material wealth and who have the means to do so are seeking the few enclaves that still have a few shreds of community and social cohesion left. These enclaves then get listed on best small towns in America or best places in the world to retire. And the resulting influx of wealthy outsiders destroys the last remaining shreds of what everyone came for. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? But, uh, you know, every time I think back, you know, I'm no, I'm not in my nineties. I'm only in my sixties, but I can remember my life growing up um my mom was basically a stay-at-home mom for the, until we were all eight old enough to go to school then she went back to her uh, job as a music teacher in the public school system my dad worked for unfortunately the dupont company for many many years and um you know money wasn't uh flowing like crazy uh but we had what we needed and it was a happy childhood. You know, we had decent food, decent uh, clothing, shelter, the things that you need. And oddly enough, it was much like he described here. But sadly, we are out of time for today. We'll be back in an hour with uh, Mike Gaddy, Cal Robbins, and DW talking about Constitution and history of this country. Uh, join us then. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, But if not, take care of your bodies because it's the only place you have to live. We will see you all very soon, whether this afternoon or next week. Take care. Have a wonderful weekend and God bless.